All right, uh, we're going to be reading um, Acts 27 and 28, 1 through 10. Yes, that's not my part. All right, um, so we'll start in Acts 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And, when, and putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed along under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we, ne we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was a city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with in injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the, the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out for sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a, temp a temptuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Kata. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, the they used supports to undergird the ship, then fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently, violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among the men, among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who, all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that they might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go.
As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to all take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were, all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Good morning. Um, so if you're new to BC, we, we do a thing where, or sometimes during the month, kids are in this room with us. Sometimes during the month, kids leave this room and go to a thing that we call Kids Connect so they can kind of learn what it's like to be part of the body of Christ. But when kids are in here, we, we kind of try to take what the text is saying and, and break it down in a way that kids understand. And so kids, where you're at, raise your hands up so I can see you. Okay, so my first question is, how many people like swimming? Okay, put your hands down. How many people can swim in the deep end? All right, put your hands down. How many people can swim in the deep end with no floats? Okay, now let's pretend that instead of talking about the deep end, we're talking about the middle of the ocean. I don't see any hands. Do you guys think you could swim from the middle of the ocean to land? Probably not, right? I don't know. I think it'd be pretty hard. So the reason why we're talking about this, because in, in, in the passage that Mr. Austin and Miss Erica just read, uh, Paul is, is on a boat. And he's on that boat, and it's in the middle of a storm. And, and they're, they're kind of, this boat is tossed around on the storm. And they get to a point 
where they're, they've been that way for 14 days, two weeks, 14 days. They don't have any food. How many of you would like to be on a boat tossed around by the storm for 14 days with no food? All right. Well, now imagine that for food, I offer you a really soggy piece of bread. Yeah, we would, we would probably eat it, but would you be happy about eating soggy bread? Maybe, maybe, maybe not, right? But the, the cool thing is that in our passage, when Paul does that, what he does is he takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives thanks. He's, he's thankful for that food, even in a pretty awful circumstance. And it's, that's really cool to see because one of the things Paul tells us later in the Bible is that we should rejoice always. We should give thanks in every circumstance. We should do things without grumbling or complaining. He, he demonstrates what he teaches on this, in this passage when he gives thanks for this, this probably soggy bread after 14 days of not eating, being on a ship, tossed about by a storm. And we're going we're gonna to talk more about this later, but kids, I would encourage you to go home and ask your parents what they learned about that and what they learned about who Jesus is and what he's done for us through this passage. So let's, let's pray, and then we'll get into this together this morning. Father, we thank you that you are good and that you're in control. Uh, even in this passage where, where it seems like this, this ship and, and, and Paul's safety and, and the safety of those with him is, is out of control. When it seems like there, there is no hope, you are still there and there is still reason to hope. We thank you for the, the grace that you show to, to Paul and to those around him uh, throughout this passage that we read together this morning. And we pray that you would, you would use it, you would, you would send your spirit to, to encourage us, to challenge us, to convict us, to remind us uh, from this passage of the grace that you've shown us and, and continue to show us because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. That, that you took our punishment. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we are, we are winding down in Acts. We have this passage and the next one, and then, and then we're done, and we move on to, to another book. Um, and this, this passage is, is mainly focused on the shipwreck. And one thing that's kind of cool about this, uh, at, least, at least I think it's cool, maybe you won't think it's cool, but I had a, a professor in school who, who wrote a commentary on Acts, and he told me that sometimes this passage, because Luke is the kind of author he is, where he goes out and he does research and he learns things about the topic that he's writing on, he uses a lot of like technical nautical terms in this passage as he describes the things that the sailors did and the way they responded to the storm. And because of that, my professor told me that there were times that this passage was used at the Naval Academy in Annapolis to talk about ancient sailing techniques, uh, which, is, which is pretty crazy. Um, I think that's cool. Maybe you don't. Um, but if you wanted to, you could do a deep dive into this passage and learn stuff about ancient sailing. So last week, Paul took us through Acts 25 and 26, where we saw Paul uh, on trial before Agrippa and Bernice. 
And in that passage, they, they recognize that he hasn't done anything wrong, but Paul appeals to Caesar, and so Festus says that he's going to send him to Caesar. It was another, another example of Paul bearing witness before Jews and Gentiles about who Jesus is and what he's done. He's done that as a missionary, he's done that as a church planner, he's done that as an apostle, and now he's doing it as a witness on trial. And so in this passage, we see him kind of make that, that, that move from where he is over to Rome. So he's, he's traveling, and the first thing they do is they, they seek out this cohort named Julius. Luke tells us that he's from the Augustan cohort. This is a, a group of soldiers that are stationed in Syria. They've been there since Augustus was Caesar. And Julius goes out and he finds a ship for them to travel towards Rome. And so they get this ship from Adramedium, which is going to set sail along the, the ports of Asia. And notice that Luke said in verse 2, we put to sea. So, so Luke, again, is with Paul. And we've talked about that, this as we've gone through the book. But I think one thing, as we kind of get to some of the last points where we're going to see this in Acts, one thing we should recognize is, is the humility that Luke has in writing this book. You know, like if, if I was there, like it would have been a major emphasis of the book. Like, Paul did this thing, and I, Dan Bourne, was right there watching. I, I saw it happen. I was there with him. But Luke is just like, I'm going to slightly change the pronouns to let people know that, that I was there. Uh, Luke shows some humility, but also recognizes that he himself is an eyewitness of these events. And so he's with uh, Paul on this journey. There's also this guy named Aristarchus, who's a Macedonian from Thessalonica. He's going to come up later in the New Testament in, in Philemon and Colossian. He's a fellow worker and a fellow prisoner with Paul. So as we move through this passage, one of the things we're going to see throughout it is, is God's grace on display. And we're going to see that in, in two major ways. The first way is, is through common grace. Uh, we, don't, we don't talk about it a lot, but common grace is a concept that talks about the grace that God shows to, to everyone, right? And so uh, whether you are someone who is a believer in Jesus or, or not a believer in Jesus, rain still falls on you, right? Whether you're a believer in Jesus or not a believer in Jesus, you can still breathe the air, right? Good things happen to people that are people of God and people that are not people of God. Both are created in God's image and can, can think and dream and imagine and, and live life in this world that God has created for us. That's God's common grace, his, his grace that he gives to everyone, we're also going to see God's kind of specific grace in this passage. He shows grace to Paul and, and to Luke and to Aristarchus that he, he maybe doesn't show to other people. We're going to see points through this passage where Paul is shown particular kindness, even, even unexpected kindness. People that we would expect wouldn't treat him well, treat him exceptionally well. And Paul's life is, is saved through the storm because of this kind of grace. And so God has provided Paul with grace that is specific because Paul is a follower of Jesus. So we're going to see God's grace on display in these ways as we move through the passage. We see the first example of this in verse 3. So they put into port. They're, they're on this ship. They're headed along the ports of Asia, along the coast, and they, they put in at Sidon. And uh, Julius treats Paul kindly here. Right? He, he allows him to, to leave and go see his friends and to be cared for by him. Right? At this point, remember, Julius is Paul's jailer. Right? He's like the warden. They're not friends. They're not buddies. And they put into port, and, and Julius says, hey, Paul, like, see you later. Go spend time with your friends. Like, this, this is unexpected. 
This doesn't seem like something that he would do, but he lets him go care for him. He shows him this unusual kindness. From Sidon, they sail by Cyprus and Cilicia and Pamphylia. They end up at Myra in Lycia. Julius finds a different ship, an Alexandrian ship, that's headed to Italy, so they jump on board. And over the next few weeks, uh, Luke says that they, 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 or the next few verses, we see that they move forward with, with difficulty. Things kind of slow down at this point of the journey because the weather is shifting. Uh, and Luke says that the fast was over. He's referring here to the, the Jewish day of atonement. That, that, is, that is past. And so the timeline here is that it's probably somewhere around mid-October. The reason why this matters is because there's this Roman military historian who, talking about sea travel during this time, said that navigation, like sea travel, was, was dangerous after mid-September, and it was impossible in the winter from, from kind of mid-November to mid-March. So Paul and these people that are traveling, like right now, they're, they're, they're in the danger zone. Right? This is a very dangerous time to travel, and it's about to get to the point to where it's impossible to travel. And most people who did any sea travel during this time would have, would have known this. They would have known, hey, right now it's, it's not a good time to travel. Uh, and so Paul, likely with this, this common sense knowledge and also the influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, goes to them and says, Sirs, I perceive the voyage will be with injury and loss not only to the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. He's saying it's a dangerous time to travel. We shouldn't travel. We should stay here. The centurion, though, doesn't listen to Paul, right? He says church planners don't know anything about sea travel. I'm going to listen to the owner and the captain. And so they put back out to sea. They want to reach this harbor in Crete and spend the winter there. And so they're sailing along Crete close to the shore, but this, this strong wind from the northeast, a, a nor'easter, it, it blows them away from the land, uh, and then they're kind of out in the middle of the sea. They get this, this island, they get on the other side of this island called Kata, which is a small island, and that gives them a little bit of shelter from the wind, enough to, to bring in the ship's boat and also kind of support the ship undergirded from the bottom. And the reason why they do that is because they're afraid that the winds are going to blow them down to the, the Sirtis, which is an area of, of sandbars and shoals off the coast of Libya. That was kind of like the ancient world's Bermuda Triangle. It was a place that was well known for its danger to traveling by ship. Uh, Luke tells us that they lowered the gear. Um, it's, it's probably adjusting or, or lowering some or more of the sails because they're, they're getting ready for this storm that they're about to enter. And so they continue to be driven along. They continue to be storm-tossed. And they, so they start throwing cargo overboard. On the third day, they throw out some of the tackle. That's probably spare parts of the ship. And just to give you a, a fun fact about, you know, this situation that you can use at a party, the, the difference between flotsam and jetsam is that flotsam is, is stuff that's floating in the ocean from a wreckage. And jetsam, which is what we see in our passage, is stuff that's intentionally thrown overboard. If you're ever at sea and you see flotsam and jetsam, you should know that the National Oceanic and, and uh, Atmospheric Administration says that if you claim flotsam, it belongs to the owner. But jetsam, it's up for grabs. So in this situation, if you were following them and you see this stuff floating in the water, you could take all of these things for yourself and no one would care. 
So they're in this storm. They're, they're, they're tossing out jetsam. Soon it will become flotsam. Uh, and Luke says that when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is not an optimistic statement. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Things are bleak at this point. Look at Paul's response to this hopelessness starting in verse 21. Luke says, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. What we see in these verses is, is what Matt Chandler talks about when he says that good news invades bad spaces. Right? They are in a, a hopeless situation. There's, there's nothing but bad news for them. There's, there's no sun, no stars, no moon, no food. They're, they're cold, they're wet, they're, they're, they're storm-tossed. Uh, they, they are in a, a horrible situation. And Paul brings them good news. He starts by, by reminding them about what he told them before. I don't think that this is Paul saying, like, I told you so, right? You should have listened to me. I was right. You're wrong. Let's all recognize that. I think this is Paul establishing his trustworthiness, right? He's saying, hey, I've got wisdom that you guys don't have. I know something you don't. The Spirit of God is, is upon me, and you should have listened to me, and you should definitely listen to me now. And so he, he gives them this hope. His good news is the answer to their bad news. He says the ship is going to be lost, but none of their lives are. How does he know this? An angel of God appeared to him, and the angel reminded him of what God had promised him, that he would go to Rome, and he would bear witness for Christ before Caesar. That is going to happen. It's a promise of God, and, and it's going to take place. But also, more good news, all of their lives have been granted to Paul. The way this is worded, it makes it seem as if it's a, a, a response to a prayer that Paul has prayed. Paul has asked God to spare not only his life, but the life of those on the ship, and God has granted that request. This is grace given to Paul and to those who are on board. And they should take heart because Paul's faith says that it will be exactly like God has said it will be. Two weeks into the storm, they get close to land. They start to measure the depth to figure out how far they are from shore because it's, it's dark out and they can't see. And so they put out anchors from the back so that they can wait for light. And as that happens, some of the sailors decide, hey, we're going to get off the ship And so they start to lower the boat. Paul sees this happening, and he recognizes that it's going to cause loss of life. So he gets the soldiers to stop them. And at daybreak, Paul urges them to eat. Look at what he says. Verse 33, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Here, I don't think it's so much what Paul says, but, but what he does that is evidence of God's grace on him. 
Paul gives thanks and, and he eats. He encourages all of them to eat, but then he does it himself. Like this is, this is an ordinary act, right? Eating a piece of bread, it, it's not a big deal. But, but on the one hand, it's exceptional and amazing that Paul does what he does here, that he, he gives thanks. It's, it's the 14th day in the midst of a storm on a boat with, with 275 other people. He's been cold, afraid, hungry. He's had the, the added pressure of, of trying to lead and set an example for those around him. Uh, and he's, he's about to eat what in all probability is, is pretty gross bread. But he gives thanks. He doesn't grumble. He doesn't complain. He doesn't mutter to himself about how they, they should have listened to him. He doesn't blame the captain or the ship owner for the situation that they're in. Instead, he, he rejoices always. He gives thanks in every circumstances. He, he demonstrates that he knows what it is to be content in any situation. He gives thanks for the most meager of meals in the worst circumstances of his life. He's demonstrating here the reality that God's grace is sufficient in his time of need. On the other hand, this isn't that exceptional. Because what Paul is doing here is he's doing something that he's probably done thousands of times before. Because breaking bread and giving thanks is, is a standard Jewish practice at meals. And so he would have grown up seeing his parents do this. He would have grown up doing it himself, meal after meal after meal. This, this habit, this, this rhythm, this, this gracious gift from his parents to him was drilled into him so that when he gets in this awful situation where he's miserable and he's handed a piece of bread, he does what he's always done. He breaks it and gives thanks. Right? This should be encouragement to us as, as individuals and as members of a family to establish gospel-centered, grace-driven rhythms in our lives so that we're on, whenever we're on a situation like Paul is, stuck on a boat and cold and miserable, right? we respond in a gospel-centered way, not because that's who we are, but because that's who our habits have made us. Paul gives thanks because his parents and his culture and he himself had established a rhythm of thanksgiving whenever he ate. His gratitude encourages them, and, and they eat alongside him, which is important because pretty soon they're all going to have to swim, and so they need the energy. When they eat enough, they, they further lighten the ship by throwing out all the wheat. In the daylight, they see that, that there's a beach that they can run the ship aground on, and so they head for that. But instead of getting there, they, they strike a reef, and the ship starts to break apart. And so they, they're going to they're gonna jump overboard. When that happens, the soldiers want to kill all the prisoners because they don't want any of them to, to get it to land and escape. But once again, Paul is shown grace as Julius intervenes and saves his life. So they, those who can swim, Luke says, jumped overboard. They swam. The rest grab on to some flotsam and, and make their way to shore. And all of them, all 276, are brought safely to land. Chapter 28, they find out, hey, we're on this island of, of Malta. And the people there also show them unusual kindness. They, they feed them. They welcome them. They build a fire. And Paul is, is graciously cared for by, by God's people uh, and by people that aren't God's people. His grace is shown to both groups. Paul, even though he's been shipwrecked, starts to serve 
He goes and he gathers firewood. And as he's gathering firewood, the snake comes out and bites him on the hand. The Maltese people see this and they say, this guy must be a murderer, right? Because he survived the sea only to get killed by a snake. They say justice has not allowed him to live. Notice the, the capital J there on justice. The, the translators here are, are, are helping us understand that they're referring to the, the Greek goddess of justice, Themis. They're saying this, this being hasn't allowed Paul to live. And so they're waiting, they're watching, uh, you know, expecting Paul to like swell up and just keel over. But he doesn't. He doesn't because their view of justice is flawed. It's not that their view of Paul is flawed. Right? We don't, we don't know for sure if Paul murdered anyone. We know that he definitely stood by when someone else was murdered. We know that when he was headed to Damascus, he was breathing threats and, and murder. And so he, he was ready to, whether he ever did or not. But, but Paul wasn't a good guy. He was the chief sinner. And so it's not that their, their view of him is messed up. It's their view of justice. The snake isn't punishment for anything that Paul has done. Right? Because we know that Jesus took on Paul's punishment. And he gave Paul his righteousness instead. The good news of the gospel is that if we trust in Christ, we don't get what we deserve. We don't have to live our lives worrying that justice is going to come out of a pile of sticks and strike us down. Because we know that justice took the punishment that was on us and put it on him. And he did that so he could be both just and the justifier of those of us who have faith in Jesus. When the people see that Paul doesn't die, they, they swing to the other extreme. He's not a murderer. He's, he's a god. Luke doesn't tell us where, where things go from here, but we know from other times and acts where this happens that Paul uses that as an opportunity to speak the gospel to them. He tells them about who God really is and what he's done for them. In the last few verses of our passage, Luke, spent, or Luke and Paul spend time with this guy Publius, who's, who's the governor on the island. He too receives Paul and his friends and shows them compassion, shows them hospitality, invites them in. We see God's common grace on display in Publius and his specific grace on display towards Paul. Paul prays for and heals his father, uh, who had fever and, and dysentery. Uh, evidently, he had been spending some time on the Oregon Trail. Uh, after Publius's father is healed, there, there's a large group of people that come to him for healing. And the response from this like huge outpouring from the community is that when they set sail, they're given supplies and honor by all of the people. And so this, this, is, this is pretty huge, right? They, they lost everything at sea. But when they need to go again, supplies are given to them. They are provided for uh, by the people. Throughout this passage, we see God's grace on display. We see it on display in, in Paul as he responds with, with thanksgiving to God, even in the worst circumstances. We see it on display to Paul as he's repeatedly shown unusual kindness from strangers. We see it on display to Paul and the rest of the ship as they are saved through the storm. We see it on display when, when Paul doesn't get what he deserves from either the sea or the snake. We see it all over this passage. Let's go out this week looking at the world around us, looking at our, our families, looking at our lives in the same way we've looked at this passage. 
watching and waiting, not for, for people to kill, keel over and die from a snake bite, but watching and waiting for, for evidence of God's grace in us, in others, in the way people treat us, in the way we treat them. Let's be looking for the grace that God has shown us with the understanding that, that because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we have been shown great grace. And God gives grace to those who don't deserve it. That's us and that's everyone in his creation. Let's pray and then Sean is going to come and and lead us in the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you that you you saved Paul and and Luke and, and all 276 people on this ship so that this could be written down and we we could learn about the grace that you showed to Paul in these circumstances. We thank you for his example in the midst of suffering. Not so that we can we can look at Paul and say he's amazing and he has it figured out, but so that we can remind be reminded that the same spirit that's in him is in us. The same grace you show to him, you show to us. We pray that as we continue in service today, that that you would send your spirit to help us to respond rightly to your word, to help us respond rightly to the Lord's Supper, to worship, to to getting to celebrate uh, baptism together. That you would remind us more and more, Jesus, of who you are and what you've done for us. that you have have taken the punishment that should have been on us on yourself, and that you've given us your righteousness instead, that we are united with you in your death and raised up with you in your new life. It's in your name we pray. Amen.